Welcome to the Martinskirk Podcast, a publication of sermons and lessons from Trinity Reformed Church of Martinsburg. Trinity Reformed exists to declare the victory of Jesus Christ through worship and practice to the ends of the earth. To learn more about our congregation, visit martinskirk.com. Sounds like we're all battling some sort of cold this week. So if you could pray for one another, that'd be great. So let's pray before we jump into the book of Nahum this morning. Let's pray. (coughs) Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the peace of Christ that passes understanding. We thank you for that peace through your son, Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit. And we pray as we read this word this morning, as we contemplate it and meditate on it, that it will change our hearts and our minds and orient us more in the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. So many people advocate for peace in our day. Peace. We often hear of the stereotypical beauty pageant contestant when asked, you know, what is the, what, what is the one thing that you desire? And they respond, world peace. Or something of that nature. And maybe we hear of peace talks between nations in the uh, nations involved in the UN or nations involved overseas. And we could hear of peaceful protests that seek to advocate for the reconciliation of peoples or the ending of an unjust war. Whatever it may be, the idea of peace, especially in our day, tend to miss one aspect, one, one big aspect of attaining that peace, and that is atonement. Atonement. Conflict and strife that requires peace usually involves sin by one party or the other, and most of the time, both. And with this sin lingers the need for justice to be done. But as the writer of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Blood must be shed. A life must be lost. This is the penalty for sin, and it is also the cost for peace. And the little book of Nahum uh, is about just that. It's about the justice and peace of God. And only three chapters long, this prophecy packs quite the punch. It starts with Nahum prophesying during the Reformation of Judah under Manasseh, the king of Judah, around 150 years after the events of Jonah. And this is applicable because he's prophesying to Nineveh, that same city, only 150 years later, the capital of Assyria. And they apparently abandoned the faith and have decided to oppress Judah. However, however, it appears that God will have none of it. This bloody city is the exact opposite of who she used to be. And so is Judah. So is Judah. Judah was once unfaithful, if you remember in the book of Jonah, following foreign gods. But now it is Nineveh's turn. And the ending does not look as, as promising as the book of Jonah looked for them. So it seems to be the end of the line for the city of Nineveh. God's patience has run thin. And the peace, the peace that was found in the verse that we read this morning, Nahum chapter 1, verse 15, comes from the bearer of good tidings on the mountain of Jerusalem. 
Now, the only bearer of good tidings that we have is Jesus. And it comes from this person in the kindness and love that only comes from a father to his children. So the Lord speaks sweetly to Judah. He speaks sweetly to Judah whenever she is brought up in the book of Nahum. And the enemies of the Lord, the enemies of Judah, get harsh and striking, often shocking rebuke. In this, Judah is comforted. And since she has turned from her wicked ways, since Judah has turned from her wicked ways, she is experiencing the love, patience, and peace of Yahweh that she had so long neglected. But this peace that the Lord provides requires something. It requires atonement. It requires blood. And this is always the case, is it not? Again, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And with no forgiveness of sin, the wrath and condemnation of God continues to rest on you. This condemnation and wrath are exhibited in the destruction of Nineveh in the book of Nahum. But the lovely news of our Savior, though only mentioned in one verse, provides vindication for the faithful in the midst of this judgment. And you'll see throughout the book of Nahum, you'll see this striking language. People stumbling over corpses in the streets, chariots on fire, blood running through the streets. Chapter 1 opens up with the anger of God that kindles against his enemies. But it also ends, chapter 1 ends, with the patience of God and his power in executing justice. The whole earth... The whole earth and all that's within it, the weather, the disasters, everything, are all orchestrated by God. They do His bidding in enacting justice on earth. Nahum says, The Lord has His way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. So there is nothing in this world, no natural phenomena, no disaster, that is not under the authority and control of our God. And truly moved to do as he wishes. He uses these things. For the wicked, as you will see, there is no comfort in this. There's no comfort that he controls the whirlwind. There's no comfort that he controls the storm. But indeed, a warning of God's power and might. Nahum says later, What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. So for Nineveh, this isn't really a warning anymore. It's a promise. God is promising that he will make an end of their plotting. So they've come a long way in 150 years, you might say, since the preaching of Jonah. From a repentant king and his subjects. Remember, they repented down from the king to the cows in Nineveh. They've come a long way. Now, instead of submitting to the Lord, they are devising evil plots against the Lord and His people. So they've not just apostatized, they've not just removed themselves from the faith, but they've also become hostile. They've become hostile to God. And you've seen this with people around you, I'm sure. If you've seen anybody leave the faith, and unfortunately in America we've had uh, plenty of cases of this, if you see someone leave the faith, you see oftentimes that they not only just stop believing, they become hostile, they become angry, and they desire to combat what God 
does. They become militant atheists. And their hatred for God cannot be contained any longer. And this is Nineveh's experience here. And the Lord deals harshly with those who trample underfoot the blood of the covenant that sanctified them. So Nahum says later, Thus says the Lord, Though they are safe, and likewise many, yet in this manner they will be cut down when he passes through. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has, a, has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile. This is quite, quite the saying. When the Lord passes through, he's saying your name will be perpetuated no longer. And I'll even cut off your gods. I'll cut off your carved images and molded images. And all of this, all of this language actually alludes to something that we're all familiar with. The Exodus. The Exodus. To the spirit passing through Egypt and killing off their firstborn. Killing a line. A generation. Nineveh will be destroyed down to the last generation. So what of Judah? If this is an allusion to the Exodus, what of Judah? Well, they're being delivered. They're under the reforms of Manasseh. They're repenting of their past sins. And they're becoming more faithful. They will be delivered as Israel was through the Red Sea. And they will hear the good news of the gospel of peace from the mountaintops. So the reforms of Manasseh and Judah have provided a way for Judah to return to the word of God and to right worship. And from the mountaintops, from the high places, and this, if you remember, this is where the temple was established in Jerusalem. The temple mount is on the mountaintops. Judah is instructed to keep the feast, to perform the vows found in the law of Moses. So keeping the feast and performing the vows, what is that? Well, the feasts were things like Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread. These were festivals uh, involving sacrifices. And the vows were worship in Israel. Declaring something about God, declaring your allegiance to Him. So, feast and vows are worship and sacrifice. So this peace, this long-awaited peace, has been proclaimed by Yahweh, and His enemies, though they war, will be put under His feet. Nahum 1.15 is the condensed version of what David says in Psalm 23, when he says, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So you can see this image in that one little verse in Nahum. That one little hope that Judah has. A table has been set in Judah in the midst of her enemies. And the Lord says, peace be to you. Keep the feasts. Perform your vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through you. What a promise is that? What a promise is that? He has, a, he has vindicated his people. And with this vindication comes peace, even when surrounded by enemies. Chapter 2 and 3 seem to be the exact opposite 
of this peace. The Lord calls for Nineveh to man the fort, to watch the road, to strengthen your flanks, because the judgments of God are coming in the form of Babylonian warriors and arrows. The judgment's coming, so you better man the fort, you better put people on the roads, keep watch, because it's coming. The battle of Nineveh begins outside the walls, outside the walls, and then it works its way into the city. It begins with the, the bloody massacre of Assyrian troops outside the city. And then the battle ends in the city streets, even down to the palace where the king lives in chapter 3. And what is interesting about this passing through the city is that this progress from world to walls then to the palace in the city streets is a liturgical process. It's a liturgical movement. It's, it looks almost the exact same as the high priest moving through the temple, except it's much different in that these people are being sacrificed. The Lord is passing through the city in a similar way the great high priest passed through the temple on the Day of Atonement. These people are being sacrificed as animals are sacrificed. The chariots burn throughout the city as lampstands. Nineveh used to be a pool of water, like a labor of washing. But it's all dried up. The Ninevites were like lions who devoured the innocent and stockpiled their cities with spoil. Sounds like a den of robbers, doesn't it? A den of thieves. Now the city is stockpiled with corpses. The city has turned to blood and the devourers have become devoured. And in chapter 3, verse 4, Nahum makes an allusion to Nineveh as a harlot. A harlot who consumes people and kills people with her sorcery. The harlot who lured men to her home only to drag them down to Sheol. But even her, she has been slain in this judgment. Even more, God continues His judgment by shaming Nineveh. So it's not, it's not even enough to, to destroy Nineveh. He has to go as far as shaming them, as shaming a woman. And I won't get into the language there, you can read it for yourself. But the language used in Nahum, in chapter 3 especially, is not easy to read. It's not easy language. They were literally stumbling over dead bodies in the streets. Nineveh had her skirt pulled over like a woman. This is not easy language for our modern eyes and ears to see and hear. And Nineveh isn't just utterly destroyed, but shame. She's reduced to nothing but mockery. So as the Lord passes through the city in judgment, these generals, these commanders, who are supposed to command the troops of Assyria, they flee. They flee like locusts. Flee from any sign of danger. They become cowards. Their haughtiness towards God's law, their haughtiness towards God Himself, has ended in cowardly flight. Many act tough in the face of God, in defiance of His law, in defiance of His goodness. But when confronted with the judgments of that law, they run, they flee, they can't act as tough as they, they wanted to. So as these men flee, the shepherds of Assyria, they slumber, 
and the nobles, they rest in the dust. They're slain. And the people of Nineveh have been, get, have been scattered among the mountains with no one to rescue them. So at the end of the book of Nahum, we see the king, the king of Assyria, who's been afflicted and wounded with a mortal wound. And looking, those looking upon him, they clap and celebrate over his impending death. This is where the book of Nahum ends. With the king dying and Judah clapping and celebrating over his destruction. The bringer of death, Nineveh, has been brought to death through the judgments of God. And the peace of Judah, this peace, as you can see, it's really evident, was not purchased without conflict. For world peace to happen, as the beauty contestant so desires, the wicked must be judged and the righteous must be vindicated. A side must win. Someone must win. There really are evil people. There really are righteous people in the world. And not everyone repents of their wickedness. So in order for peace to come, there must be a death. And this is why our Lord said that He came not to bring peace, but the sword. He had come to judge the unfaithful and to vindicate the faithful. This crushing of evil requires sacrifice. All warfare is sacrificial. All warfare is sacrificial. You go to war for something. You die for someone or something. It's sacrificial. So Christ came to be that sacrifice. A sacrifice not only to save a faithful people, but to crush the head of the serpent. To crush the head of the serpent. To defeat the enemy. And that's what the book of Nahum is prefiguring. It's prefiguring that final day of judgment on sin, death, and the devil. That's what it's prefiguring. That peace will finally come in the sacrifice of Christ. The king of this evil kingdom is mortally wounded. There is no healing for his wound. He's going to die. It's just a matter of time before he succumbs. On the cross, Christ Jesus shed his own blood. He died, and in his resurrection, he mortally wounded the enemy, death and Satan. And in his second and final coming, we will see the death of Satan. We will see the death and Satan succumb to their injuries that they received in the sacrifice of Christ. They will be swallowed up in victory. And at this time, at this time, peace will reign on earth through the person of Jesus Christ. His rod and staff will comfort us. And we will be worshiping in the light of the face of Jesus, ruling and reigning with Him in the Holy Spirit forever. This is the peace of Christ. And this is our peace that we can all have. This true, peace, this true peace, and it only lies in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So justification... Being justified by faith means being set free, being liberated. 
And through this justification, this bloody justification, there is peace. But this justification requires blood, and it requires the blood of God himself. There is no peace apart from the blood of Christ, because there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And there is no peace when God's wrath looms over you. So through this bloody death of Jesus, we are able to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God if we truly believe in him. This is our hope. This is our peace. It's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it'd be one thing, it'd be one thing if Christ died for us so that we didn't have to die. Right? We, we hear this, I'm sure we've heard this before, growing up in the church. Many of you have grown up in the church. That Jesus died on our behalf so that we didn't have to. Right? That's one way, that, that'd be one thing. And it's quite another to say that we are united to his death. That we too die in Jesus. So we don't escape death. In fact, we participate in Christ's death. Our sins, our flesh, have been crucified with Christ on the cross. Paul says elsewhere in Romans, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is where peace lies. It is Christ's blood that covers us. We die so that when we are raised, we can live as living sacrifices, living in the newness of life of the kingdom of heaven. We must always remember that we too would have been destroyed as, as Nineveh had been had we, not, had we not had the Lord be gracious to us and proclaim the peace of the gospel to us. We would be in the same shoes as them. We deserve the same thing as them, but we have been crucified with Christ. We have died a judgment, and that judgment was taken on by Jesus. So remember that the next time you're shocked at how the world acts around you, or what they believe, or what they say about you. That could have been you had you not been given the gift of Christ Jesus. So, Christ has come, and he has proclaimed the peace of the kingdom of heaven. And this peace is purchased by the blood of Jesus himself. So what does our Lord require of us in light of this good news? The good news of peace that he proclaims to us. What does the Lord require? Well, in Nahum, he simply tells us to keep the feasts and perform the vows. Keep the feasts, perform the vows. In the New Covenant, what are the feasts? What are the vows? What does this mean for us? Feasts and vows could easily be shorthand for worship and sacrifice, for praise, for worship, for feasting at his table. And this is how we respond to the peace of Christ offered to us in the gospel. We respond in Eucharist, in thanksgiving, in gratitude. This is what praise is. It's a response of thanksgiving to God. And showing this gratitude is a natural response to receiving the peace of Christ. This peace of Christ, it passes all understanding. It passes all understanding. It's the kind of peace through which you can set a table in the midst of your enemies. Think about that. You have enemies surrounding you, and you sit down and you have a picnic. 
not worried about anything. You eat and you enjoy, you drink and you laugh. It's the kind of peace that leaves the judgment of the world in the hands of God because He controls the whirlwind, He controls the storm, He controls the seas. This kind of peace is found here at this table right in front of us. The memorial of Christ's death. That's where peace is found. Though we are surrounded by enemies, we can eat in thanksgiving because the peace of Christ has come. And no matter what happens to you, no matter what happens to those who who you love, you have one who has come preaching peace. A peace found in that very preacher. Our Lord Jesus. So you may doubt, you may worry, you may have anxiety about tomorrow. You may feel insecure about your salvation. But know that the peace has come and the one who has brought it commands you to come to his feast. He commands you to eat. He commands you to leave everything up to God. Gratitude is all he requires of you. So though the nations rage, though your mind races, though you be tempted to doubt, he tells you to take, to eat, and remember that he will set all things right. So sit at this table, confess your gratitude, eat, drink, laugh, sing, invite others in this dying world to come and feast with you. And let the Lord carry your burdens, knowing that he promises a peace that surpasses understanding. So come to Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.